you thankful here tonight. Let's give God some praise. Let's thank him here today. Hallelujah. Are you thankful that one day hell lost another one and it was your name that went down in the Lamb's book of life? Oh, let's give him praise. Hallelujah. Oh, somebody give the Lord a hand clap of praise and a shout of victory. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise one more time in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. you. May be seated in the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. It feels good in the presence of God here tonight. Amen. I like that. Amen. Some folks got to get up out of their grave in Jesus' name. Praise God. I um, did you have your Bibles, the book of Genesis, chapter 27. We're going to continue on in our in our study of the scriptures, and uh, got a few questions. Um, well, I've got one question we're going to answer here tonight. I uh, just want to remind you, there is a box in the back. If you have any questions uh, in accordance with what we're talking about, uh, I've got a couple questions here that uh, don't have anything to do with what we're talking about, so I'm not going to answer those ones here tonight. Um, but I got one that was from a little earlier, and uh, I had meant to talk about it sooner, but I might as well answer it now. Uh, the, the question was, and I hope I got it right because it looks like they wrote down Isaac, but I think the name was meant to be Ishmael. Uh, if Ishmael did everything right, why wasn't he the chosen one? And it's quite a simple answer on that. The simple answer is because he was a product of the flesh. He was not a child of promise. And so uh, that, again, God said, Ishmael shall be blessed because he's your child. Uh, but he is not the promised child because the promised child had to be born in a miraculous way. And this is a very simple way of how people live their lives. There are people that believe Ishmael is good enough. And how I am by the way I've operated in my flesh is enough. And God should just accept my best. And I want to tell you that is, that is the wrong premise. Because our best is never good enough. The Bible says that all, all of our righteousnesses, that's the things we pride ourselves in, the things we do good at, all of those things, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. That means everything you could do the best at, it's still not good enough. Now, here's the good news of the gospel. Everything you've done and you try to do, it's not going to be enough because we are imperfect beings. But because of the sacrifice on Calvary, what Jesus did for us, what was not enough in our own right, because of what he did, is now enough. And so, uh, so that is, again, Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of prophecy. He is, he was the child of promise. And so what we try to produce through our flesh like Abraham did with Hagar, it's not the promise of God. It's not the promised child. But what, what Jesus has done being the child of promise, what Isaac does, amen, that is, uh, that is the will of God. That is New Testament salvation right there. So Genesis chapter 27, I want to recap uh, that, that, again, that question, forgive me, that was an older question from when we were talking about Ishmael, uh, so please forgive me that we deviated for a second, but Genesis chapter 27, kind of want to go back in there and, uh, and just read a little bit so that we can kind of get a little context, and I'm just going to recap very, very quickly, and uh, verse number number 11, 
verse number 11. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. My father peradventure will feel me, and I shall be to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me, and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice. Go and fetch me them. And he went and fetched and brought to his mother, and his mother made savory meat, such as his father loved. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were there with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. And she gave the savory meat and the bread uh, which she had prepared in the hand of her son Jacob and came to his father and he said, My father, and he said, Here I am, who art thou, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according to as thou hast bade me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat my venison that my soul might bless me. Skipping down to verse 23. And he discerned him not because his hands were hairy as his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Now we talked last week about Isaac and how he discerned not that he was speaking to his youngest son. He was speaking to Jacob. He let all of his human senses be the guiding force of his life. He let how he could see, and the Bible says his eyes begin to grow dim, so that was already a diminished sense. He used his sense of feeling. He used his sense of, of just knowing what time it was. He knew, used his sense of smell. He used his sense of hearing. He used his sense of taste, whether or not it was prepared the right way. But, you know, you can season anything. You ever heard the phrase, it tastes like chicken? You can season anything and have it taste a certain way. And all of this was used to deceive his father. And even though his ears were working well, he said, I, I, you feel like Esau, but I hear the sound of Jacob. Because he did not let discernment work in his life and he rested upon his human understanding and his human senses, he ended up blessing the wrong son. And, uh, and so last week we talked about how necessary it is in the life of a Christian to have discernment, suspicion, uncertainty, a bad feeling, facts not lining up, something not sounding right, something not feeling right was not enough. It's not enough for you to have a human sense, feeling, intuition, whatever you want to call it. Because sometimes those things will lie to you. And we talked a little bit last week about sometimes the things that we feel like they're bad for us are actually the best things for us. And we will, we will walk into a room, walk into a situation, we will go through a season of life. And if we don't have proper discernment, we will feel something that doesn't feel good doesn't seem good, doesn't look good, and we will make the wrong assumption that this is not good. Paul would have done this if he didn't have discernment with the thorn in the flesh. He'd have said, nope, this is not from God. It's bad because it hurts. And in modern Christianity, without discernment, and I, really I use that broad term Christianity, really it's, it's secular Christianity, has become a humanist movement that says the end of all being is your happiness. And what makes you feel good. The problem with that whole line of thinking is it takes you down uh, the path of pleasure. And 
And, and the Bible even declares that, that sin is pleasurable for a season. And if you go based on human feeling, you will go through the, the path of pleasure and what feels good, what you think is good. But, but every one of us that's lived a little while knows that sometimes the things that don't feel good, that, don't, that you don't think are good, are actually the best things for you. Medicine doesn't taste good. They can try to make it taste like cherry, but it doesn't taste like cherry. That's disgusting. They can try to do whatever they can. You can, you can, you're, you know, for your animals, your animals don't even want to eat a pill. You got to wrap it up in peanut butter because you got to trick them into thinking when the truth is, just like a kid, you got to beg, borrow, and steal to get them to take their medicine because it's like a hostage negotiation. You know, it's just, I'll give you whatever you want. Just take this. So there's that whole element. Well, the truth is, is that they don't have a revelation that although it doesn't feel good, taste good, seem good to my human senses, discernment, if I will pray deep enough, will tell me that this is good for me. This is good for me. There's times even in the kingdom of God that you will go through a season of loss. You will go through a season of loneliness. You will go through a season of, of turmoil. You go through seasons of, of rebuke. You will go through seasons where it feels like God has, has turned things around and life itself seems to have turned on you. And you will think to yourself, God must have forsaken me. If you don't have discernment, you will think hard times are a sign that God has left you. But you read your Bible, and the Bible says that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. You read your Bible long enough, and you will know that even, then Joseph, even when Joseph was in the pit, when his brothers forsook him, God never forsook him. And even when he was lied on by Potiphar's wife, God did not forsake Joseph. And even though he was left in a prison to rot and die, when the, when the, when the butler forgot him, amen, he was not forsaken by God. And even when he made his way to the palace, amen, in the time of blessing, he didn't say all of a sudden, well, God just decided to show up. No, he knew that God was with me in the pit. God was with me in Potiphar's house. God was with me in prison. And it's the same God that's with me in the palace and if you don't have discernment you will get to a hard time in life and this is what causes people to backslide I can't live for God anymore why I lost my job well people that don't live for God lose their job but could it be that God's actually trying to do something that works about an eternal weight of glory in your life? James would put it this way. Do not despise the fiery trials which are to try you as though some strange thing has happened. Amen. He said don't, don't be mystified by this. this. This is all part of the process. And it could be that God's trying to produce faith and God's trying to produce Christian ethics and God's trying to produce good things. And you got to go through a hard time and a difficult time to produce those things. Discernment will tell you, we know all things work together for the good. Amen. That means if it's not good yet, God's not done yet. And you can go through hard times with discernment and go, hey, God's in this. You can have a thorn in your flesh and you can say, man, I wish this would go away. But this is what saved. You know, there's some people that as long as they're sick, they serve God. As long as they're broke, they serve God. As long as they got to take the bus, they make it to church. But don't give them a car. Amen. As long as they're making minimum wage, they're going to be, they're going to be faithful in giving, but don't bless them. They're going, to, they're going to lose it. And that thorn in the flesh of not elevating is there because God knows until they grow past this, they're not going to grow. 
it's not going to it's not going to be good for them it's going to lose them and so god leaves that thorn in the flesh and if you will pray beyond your human senses feelings amen beyond what feels a certain way we got a feeling we're in a feeling generation how's it feel what's the vibe vibe check amen there's folks come to church with a for a vibe check amen they ain't, ain't going to feel no vibe here amen and uh and 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 they go based on that when the truth is you should go based on the message because the message matters more than how it feels. What it's doing in you should be more important than how it feels to you. You know, I've been rebuked by my pastor, and it don't feel good. That's some, that's some very bad English. It doesn't feel good. It, it, it doesn't feel good to read the Word of God and be convicted. It doesn't feel good to hear preaching and feel convicted. It doesn't feel good to go to prayer and to know God's going to deal with me about some things, but it's good for me. And if you get discernment, discernment will say, I better start praying because it's good for me. And I better go to church because it's good for me. And I, I need a rebuke from the word of the Lord because it's good for me. I need the medicine because it's what's going to help me get better. So Jacob, he's, he's, his voice is sounding like Jacob, but he feels like Esau. And if we're not careful, we'll just go based on how we feel that week and we'll bless the wrong things. But if we get discernment working in our life, we will recognize that there is a right thing and there is a wrong thing. In a world that is telling you up is down and down is up, there is no such thing as gender. There is no such thing as good or evil. Amen. It's turning things and twisting things. I want to tell you, you need to have a prayer life. You need to have the word of God in your life. You have to have discernment. Because if not, you will end up blessing a lot of wrong things. You know, there's some people you'll bless, you'll bless ministries that aren't of God. They're not teaching the word of God. And you'll say, man, that guy preached so good. No, he wouldn't have God. Amen. It felt right, but it wasn't right. Everybody said amen. So I'm jumping off that soapbox. But it's important to have prayer because without prayer, you will not have discernment. It's important to have a, a relationship with God, a relationship with the word of God, because without that, you will not have discernment. And if you don't have discernment, you will have voices come into your life, and you will think they're right. But they're wrong. And they're not telling you what God is telling you. Amen. When Esau returned from his hunt, he finally showed up, and he presented his meal. Uh, let's, let's go to verse number 30. We'll continue on from this. Verse number 30. And he made them, uh, let me go back, I'm sorry, <clears throat> chapter 27, verse 30. There we go. And it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, that Jacob was yet was yet scarce gone from out of the presence of Isaac, his father. And Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Now, I just got to take this. You know, there's some people that they are too hasty in their decision-making that they don't wait for the right son. They don't wait for the right thing. They don't pray for discernment. And the Bible says that Jacob wasn't even scarce gone, which means he barely exited the room. When the right thing walked in. We're talking about he was deceived, okay? We're, we're not saying that Esau was the right thing in the scriptural context. But the, the, the thing he was meant to bless walked in right after the thing he was not supposed to bless walked in. But he was too hasty and he made a decision in that moment. And that's why Isaac said in verse 32, or verse 31, And he'd, he'd also made savory meat. And he also brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father rise and eat the venison that he may bless me. And Isaac said to his father, who are you? And he said, I am thy firstborn Esau. Now we got two Esau's. Oh, no. And this is when the Bible says Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, who? Where, 
where have you taken the venison that you brought me? I've already eaten all of this. And he just tells him, I've already blessed you. I've already done all this. And it was at that moment Isaac realized his discernment was off. Amen. Verse 34. And we're going to continue on in this. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me also, O my father. He despised the birthright, which was the responsibility to lead the family, but he was wanting the blessing. And there's a whole word there. There's people, they don't want responsibility, but they want the blessing. The truth is, you don't get one without the other. You have to have the responsibilities that God's kingdom has in order to get the blessings that God's kingdom has. And you can't just have the blessing of God without walking in the ways and the word of God. That's how God's kingdom operates. You can't have it without having the other. And he said, bless me also. I want to have a blessing as well. Let's talk about what literally happened here. And he said, verse 35, thy brother came with subtility and have taken away thy blessing. I love how he put it in verse 36. He said, is he not rightly named Jacob, which means heel plant, a heel grabber, supplanter, liar, deceiver. There's this element that Esau just, it was like a moment he realized that he had just been hoodwinked again and again and again by his brother. And he said, is he not rightly named Jacob? In his flesh, Jacob was a liar, cheat, thief, deceiver, supplanter. In his flesh, he was correctly Named. I want you to hold on to that because eventually, amen, in, in our future Bible say we're going to get to the fact that God's going to change his name. He was rightly named Jacob, but he didn't have to stay that way. And everybody said amen. For he has supplanted me these two times. He has taken away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, has thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all thy, his brethren have I given him for thy servants. And with corn and with wine I have sustained him. And what shall I do unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and the dew from heaven above. And, but, and by thy sword shalt thou live, and thou shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass that when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. Amen. Verse 41. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will slay my brother Jacob. Esau received a blessing, but he did not receive the blessing. He did not receive the covenant blessing. He hated Jacob and angrily planned to kill him. And when Rebekah learned of Esau's threat, she sent Jacob, her, his brother, to Laban's home. And she never saw him again. I want you to notice this for a moment. In verse, amen, he, he said, is he not rightly named Jacob in verse 36? And in verse 37 to 41, he prays to his father, do you only have one blessing? 
And the truth is, yes, he only had one covenantal blessing. The blessing, because up to this point, it was the blessing went from the father to the son. But now there's twins, and what do you do in this moment? It's got to go to the firstborn. But because of this deception, it's going upon the secondborn. And he says, do you only have one blessing? And the answer was, yes, I've only got one covenantal blessing. But I can, as a father, I can bring a blessing and I can pray a blessing over you. But the truth behind this blessing is it was a leftover blessing. You got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 28. And verse number 6. And when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, he sent him away to Pandanaram to take him a wife from thence. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother. I want you to notice the difference. We're going to talk about the difference between Jacob and Esau here tonight. Because in this portion of their life, they both make mistakes. Jacob has lied, he has cheated his brother, he has stolen the, birth, the blessing, and he has tricked his brother out of the birthright. But in this, he obeys his father and his mother. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then Esau went unto Ishmael. This is where we talked about uh, Esau a while ago. He got a lot of ideas from Ishmael. No doubt he learned hunting from Ishmael. No doubt he got his bitterness about not really being the promised son from Ishmael. And he took the wives of which he had, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, and that's what he made to be his wife. I want you to notice what he did. Esau realized, I didn't get the covenantal blessing because I've, I've not been making appropriate decisions. He'd already married two other women from Canaan land. And in this moment, he sneaks in and he sees a second blessing coming upon, as a departing blessing coming upon Jacob. And he, and he sees this blessing from his father. And he says, do not marry the daughters of Canaan. And he realizes, again, a little too late. And this is, uh, this is the problem with Esau. Is he recognizes the right thing too late. And this is why the Bible says of Esau, he found no place of repentance. He was looking for, a, for an opportunity to make it right. And so what does he do? He says, oh my goodness, the daughters of Canaan have not pleased my parents. Maybe I can make up for my lack of, of blessing. Maybe I can make up for my lack of obedience. Maybe I can make up for all of this by leaving and going and finding a daughter. Maybe if I go and find an Ishmaelite. Notice He's trying to make up for it in his own mind. And, if, and, and this is how we get as people that when we aren't living right, and we aren't doing right, we start trying to make up for it in other ways. And we think in our own human ingenuity, how can I make up for my wrongs? And how can I make up for, instead of finding a place to repent and say, God, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and apologizing to the people that we need to do it. Instead, we try to make up for it in different ways. You know, there's some people, they don't, they don't believe in saying the word sorry. Well, I, I baked you cookies. Praise God. Amen. You know, sometimes you gotta, you got to learn the word sorry. It works. And there's other people, well, I, well, I, just, I, just, I just decided I was going to treat them different. No, you got to learn the word sorry. you got to find a place of repentance. And Esau, 
He never went to his parents and said, Mom and Dad, what can I do to make this right? No, he just kept making it worse. Now he's, he's now connected to Ishmael on a familial level, even more so than he was. And he's, and he's trying to make up for the fact that he has missed out on the blessing. And Esau has now, all he has left is the leftover blessing. And I want to tell everybody in this building, do not settle for Esau's blessing. Don't settle for the leftover blessing. When there's a perfect will of God, don't settle for the acceptable will of God. Romans 12 and 2 says, uh, verse 1 says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. But Romans 12 and 2 says that we are to present, after we present our body, that we may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That lets me know that the will of God is more multifaceted than we've given it credit. We've made the will of God to be black and white when the truth is there's a lot of gray areas. Amen. Paul is using this to tell us that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice so that we can fulfill and prove in our own lives. And the ultimate goal is to do the perfect will of God. But I've seen too many people live their lives like Esau, living on a leftover blessing, living on a I'll make it right a little too late. And I'll make it right in my own way. And I'll make it right the way I want to do it. And they end up not doing the perfect will of God by simply repenting and praying, getting it right, and asking God, what do I need to do? Instead, they start doing it in their own power, in their own mind, in their own strength. And they get a leftover blessing where now they're not operating in the perfect will of God, but they've got to settle for maybe the good will of God. Or maybe they've got to settle for the acceptable will of God. Don't settle for Esau's type of blessing. Don't settle for Esau's way of living. Don't settle for Esau's way of thinking. Don't settle. Somebody ought to clap your hands and give the Lord some praise. Esau refused to repent. You know, and that's really what causes people to miss the will of God. They won't repent. They've got too much pride in, in what they're doing to repent. They've got too much of their own understanding, their own human thinking to just repent and say, I'm sorry. I want to tell you, there is something beautiful about finding a place of repentance. There is something that after you've done wrong, after you've stepped out of the will of God, I want to tell you, you can get back into the perfect will of God. All it takes is one act of repentance there's a reason you read about Samson in the book of Hebrews 11, uh, and it's the hall of faith, a man that gave his life over to parties, a man that was supposed to be used of God, that gave himself over to playing games with the anointing, a man that gave himself over to harlots and living the, absolutely against his own calling and living against his own, uh, his own consecration, that you find him in the heroes of faith. I got a question for you. What got Samson in the heroes? of faith after he lived a life out of the will of God it was an act of repentance it was an act of saying, God, I know I haven't been in the perfect will of God. I, I want to tell you, some people are trying to figure out what's the perfect will of God. How do I find the perfect will of God? I'll tell you what the perfect will of God is. You repent. And that's why the Bible says it is 
not the will of God that everyone should perish. Amen. But that all should come to repentance. I want to tell all the people that are living like Esau here tonight how you can get into the perfect will of God. You got to repent. You got to say, God, I'm sorry. You got to be willing to lay down your pride. You got to be willing to lay down your ego. You got to be willing to lay down your own human understanding. You got to lay down your own mindset and say, God, I repent. I've been living wrong. I've not been doing right. I'm sorry. Somebody lift up your hands all across this building. Come on, how do I get in the perfect will of God? You repent. Don't keep going down the road and trying to make it right on your own willpower. You've got to repent to make it right. You got, if you want the perfect will of God, you've got to repent over it. People that don't repent miss the will of God. People that don't live a life of repentance, oh, well, I repented when I got saved. Well, I got the good news for you. Paul said, I die daily. I want to tell you as a pastor, I repent every day. Repenting is a change of direction. And you know, that's a, that's a change of direction. And, and that's when, and sometimes, the Bible even puts it this way, and I love how it does put it, peradventure, great old English word, means perhaps, that after the preaching of the word of God, that peradventure, God might give them repentance. And there's a whole idea about repentance. You need to, you need to operate under repentance when you feel conviction. Because the Bible says perhaps, maybe, God might give them, he might give them repentance. Amen. Which means when you feel convicted and you feel the word of God come upon you. I want to tell you what that means. That means God is, God is granting you a moment of repentance. But I have been in services. I have been experiencing services. I have preached services where the conviction of God is coming forth. And yet this person over here feels nothing. That means in that moment, they, they have missed their opportunity of repentance at that moment. But there's been other times where God has moved on them. And they have, and the reason they missed their repentance is because they decided not to repent in that moment. You can't say it like this. I'll just repent whenever I want. No, you repent when God opens the door of repentance. That's why the Bible says it is, don't you know, it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. You know why Esau never found a place of repentance? Because when God was convicting him, he rejected God's leading, and he rejected God's mercy, and he rejected God's kindness. And instead of repenting and saying, I'm sorry, he kept trying to make things right on his own power. But I want to tell you, the only thing you get, the only way you get back in the perfect will of God, you have to repent your way back into the perfect will of God. When you mess up, repent. When you don't do right and you know you should have done right, you got to repent over the sin of omission. I should have done what was right. I didn't do what was right, and so I repent. When you do wrong and the sin of commission and you committed the act, you got to repent and say, I did it, I admit to it, and I'm sorry. That's the only way you get back in the perfect will of God. That's it. And Esau found no place of repentance, and he missed the will of God. Do not settle for Esau's blessing. Don't settle for that leftover blessing that says, well, I'll just take what I can get. You know, the people that are so full of pride, the perfect will of God is still available to them. But because they've got too much pride, they go, if, they're, if they even get to this far, I'll just take the good will of God. Because really... What is the good will of God? What's the acceptable will of God? 
It's when we've mixed our will with his will. The perfect will of God is when we just say yes to whatever he has. The good will or acceptable will of God, the only thing that differentiates those two is how much of our will is involved in it. Hallelujah. So some people, they've, they've said, you know what? And then there's others that they've, it's all their will. It's the will of me. And they are out of the will of God. Amen. It was Jonah who was heading in the wrong direction. He was in the will of me. But because he repented, God got him back into the perfect will of God. If you'll repent, God will get you back in the perfect will of God. Amen. Jacob is now running for his life. Verse 42 of chapter 27. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. She sent and called Jacob her younger son. And she said, Behold, thy brother Esau is as touching thee, doth comfort himself. This is how he comforted himself, purposing to kill you. There are some people like that. Amen. That your demise is actually what brings them comfort. Praise God. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise and flee to Laban, thy, uh, my brother in Haran, and tarry with him a few days until thy brother's fury be turned away. Jacob is now running for his life, and, 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 and he, he's trying to get away from his brother. And let's, let's, let's look where he's at now in Genesis 28, verse 11. We're just seeing the difference between Jacob and Esau. Because both are flawed. Both made mistakes. Both didn't live right. Both were out of the will of God. I want you to understand this. Both were out of the will of God for a season of their life. Verse 11, and he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and laid down in that place to sleep. Anybody ever been in a hard place in your life? That hard place is actually a good place. He used a, I've never, I've never been in such a hard place. I had to use a rock for a pillow. I mean, that doesn't sound very comfortable. But he used a rock for his pillow. In verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up to heaven, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood, stood above it, and he said, I am the Lord God. The God of Abraham, thy father, the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou dwelliest, I'm sorry, the, where, the land wherein thou liest, to thee I will give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in the, all the places whither thou goest, and I will bring thee again to this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done which I have spoken unto thee. Jacob discovered for the first time that God is not only near, but he is merciful and forgiving. The prayer of blessing by the old man Isaac was more than just words of man. It carried with it the force of covenant agreement with God. And I want to tell you, God stands behind the prayers of his covenant people. And this is what happens to Jacob. Jacob is in this place, and he is seek. He doesn't even know. He's just on the run. And I want you to notice the theme of Jacob's life. As long as he operates as Jacob, when times get tough, Jacob runs. When things get difficult, Jacob runs, because that's what's in the nature of Jacob. 
give you the side note in advance. It's interesting. The first thing God did before he changed his name, he broke his hip. He basically said, you're done running. And there's a blessing when God stops us from running. Amen. But here, Jacob, he is, he is in this, this position, verse 16. And Jacob waked out of his sleep and said, surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. You know, there are times when God, even in your hard times and difficult moments when you're on the run, you think you're a million miles away from God. I want to tell you, David put it best. Even if I make my bed in hell, you are with me. Even if I ascend to heaven, you are there. You cannot outrun God. And even in those most difficult moments, God is there. And he had a moment of revelation that God was here, and I didn't even recognize it. Verse 17, and he was afraid. And he said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. He didn't even realize he had ran into the house of God. He didn't recognize that God was moving. And there's people that can recognize and really check with Jacob. And I can, I can say, I testify with Jacob. There's been a lot of times in my life I've been on the run. And I happen to run into church not realizing that God had a word for me in the church in that moment. Not realizing that God's presence would move on me. Not realizing that God's conviction would change the direction of my life forever. But I so thank God that when he moved on me, I recognized that he was moving on me. That when his conviction came, I didn't shake it off and ignore it. And I didn't try to go my own way. And there's people here today that you feel the conviction of God even tonight. That as you feel the conviction of God, the greatest thing you can do is do what Jacob did, not what Esau did. Amen. Verse 18, and Jacob rose up early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put for his pillows, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. Bethel literally means the house of God. He took that difficult moment, that difficult season, that, you know, I've heard the phrase between a rock and a hard place. He took that hard place and he anointed it. And he recognized the presence of the Lord is even there in my hard place and in my difficult time. And God has not left me even though it's difficult. And God has not forsaken me even though it's hard. And God has not left me in this moment, but God is still moving on me. And Jacob took that pillow and he anointed it and he set it up for a pillar. Amen. There are, there are moments in God when you get convicted where you can convert pillows into pillars. Things in your life that you have laid on and you have slept on and you've forgotten about and you didn't recognize how valuable they were, but those hard moments in your life will eventually become the pillars that set you up in the kingdom of God. And I've just come to tell everybody in this building, amen, that God is going to build His church on a lot of people that have been through a lot of hard things. God's going to build his church on people that have been through difficult storms, difficult seasons. But the way he builds his church is on people that recognize that God was with me through it. And they say, I'm no longer going to sleep on this. I'm going to use this testimony to build the kingdom. It was there. Jacob vowed a vow, verse 20. Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God be with me and will keep me in the way that I go. And will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on. 
so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give a tenth unto thee. It was here that he promised to erect the house of God. It was here that he took this pillow, this pillow and built an altar out of it. And it was there at Bethel that he said, I am going to make a vow. I'm going to make a promise. It was here that in this difficult moment, what converts pillows into pillars? Amen. It's those people that make altars out of that. You can't just go through difficult things and just go, well, it's difficult and give up. No, you got to make an altar. It's not that you failed and you just say, well, I failed. I'm just going to keep on doing what I think is best. No, here's the biggest difference between Esau and Jacob. Jacob, when he felt God's presence, instead of going his own way and doing what he thought was best, he saw and felt the presence of God. He experienced and had an encounter with God. And it was there he started to build an altar. And I want to tell everybody here today, we must be people that build altars. God, God is looking for people. If you want to find a place of repentance, the reason that Esau never found a place of repentance is because repentance is not necessarily a place. Amen. Repentance is not something you find. Repentance is something that you build. Amen. Repentance comes upon the altars that we build. It comes upon the altars that we set up. And there are people that have not built altars, and that is why they have never repented. They have, they have, they have, they have, they have built a, a place to rest. They built a place to sleep, but they've never built altars. And the difference between Esau and Jacob is Jacob, when confronted with the presence of God, he took out the anointing oil or, or the oil he had and used it like an anointing oil. And he said, this is no longer just another pile of rocks. But he started taking these stones and he set them up in a pillar and he dedicated it. And he said, this is the house of God. This is an altar. And he didn't have a blood sacrifice. He he didn't have a, a man, some, some ram in the thicket like his grandfather Abraham. But it was here on this altar that he vowed a vow and he laid himself upon that altar. And he said, Lord, if you'll be with me, if you'll keep me, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. I will serve you for the rest of my life. Esau never found a place of repentance because he never built an altar. And if you want to settle for Esau's leftover blessing, I'll tell you how you do it. Don't build an altar. Don't build an altar in your home. Don't build an altar. And let me just tell you, we no longer build uh, uh, stone altars. We're no longer in the Old Testament. Right? We don't have to have a physical altar, a physical location. Now, I'll tell you right now, we call this place in the front our altar. This place, the altar in the Old Testament We'll study more about the altar in future times. It was a place of sacrifice. You didn't go to the altar without sacrifice. You came to the altar with sacrifice. It was a place of bloodshed. It was a place of fire. It was a place to get God's blessings. It was a place to repent of your wrongs. The altar was a place to encounter God. It was a place to talk with God. And it was a place where God would speak with you. 
And I've found far too many people that have become content in their Christianity without building an altar. But I want to tell you, amen, we are people that build altars. I want to tell you, we, we have in the church, we call this place our altar. And every service we have something called an altar call. Hallelujah. And when you come down to the front, it's more than just doing some religious activity. I'll tell you what you're doing. You are making a, it is every step you take forward, you are saying, uh, I'm going to be a person that goes to the altar. I'm going to be the type of person that has a prayer life. I'm going to be the type of person that sacrifices. I'm going to be the type of person that has an encounter with God. I want to tell you, Apostolic Revival Center, we are people of the altar. Hallelujah. Amen. I want to tell you, there's people in this building, amen, that receive the gift of the Holy Ghost in the altar. You can receive the Holy Ghost in your seat, amen, but you cannot receive the Holy Ghost without going to an altar. You may not have come to the physical altar in the front, but you made an altar in your seat. And when you begin to repent, and when you begin to pray, and when you begin to cry out to God, amen, God filled you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Oh, I think, I think we ought to thank God for the altar. If you don't build an altar in your family, your family's not going to make it. If you don't build an altar in your home, I'm not talking about getting the hammer and the nails, although you might do that. It might be where you develop a closet, you build a place, and you say, every time I need to get a hold of God, that's where I'm going. If you don't have a place to go, ask and get a key. I'll get you a key. You can come down to the church, and every time you need a place to pray, you can pray right here. Well, Pastor, I, I got a lot going on. I've got a busy schedule. You know what? You need to turn your car into an altar. You need to start saying, God, uh, when I need to pray, uh, I'm going to pray in my, in my car. Uh, I might be driving down the road, but I'm going to make this a place where I can encounter God. I'm going to make this a place where I can sacrifice. I'm going to make this a place where I can, I can really pray. I can really repent. You've got to have an altar. People that don't have altars, they don't make it as Christians. And you can't, let me put it this way, you can't go to somebody else's altar. I built an altar in my heart. I built an altar in my life. You can't come pray at my altar. You got to be an altar builder yourself. And this is what set the patriarchs apart. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those ones built altars. Esau never did. And it was there at the altar. He made a vow to God. He discovered for the first time God was merciful. He was forgiving. And when he built that altar, he voluntarily made it. He made a commitment. That's what you do at the altar. You make a commitment. Amen. He said, I'm going to tithe a tenth of all of my income. I want you to understand that just as a side note, this is before the law. Tithing was pre-law. Bit by bit, God was revealing to man his financial plan. And as we give God his part, he ensures to bless us and to prosper us through his spirit. And through his means, amen, it's not, uh, it's not the world's financial plan. It's God's financial plan. But it went beyond that. He looked and he said, I don't have anything left to offer. I just have a little bit of oil. And all I have is the oil and a commitment. And I want to tell you what the altar is best for. The altar is best for repentance and is best for commitment. This is why when people get married, where do they go? Go down to the altar. They make a commitment. It's a symbol. And when you come down to the altar and you pray, and I'm using this altar as an example, but you can pray at your home, you can pray in your car, you can pray in your bedroom, you can pray, you can pray in the physical closet for all that matters. 
but in your heart you build an altar. And you say, God, I'm going to be the type of person that sacrifices. I'm going to be the type of person that encounters you. I'm going to be the type of person that commits themselves. I'm going to be the type of person that repents. Everybody said amen. Let's stand. Got a lot more I could say on that, but for the sake of time, we're going to we're going to stop there. But I wonder if we could lift up our hands all across this building. Come on, let's pray. Come on, the altar is a place of prayer. In fact, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The entire house was supposed to be an altar. I want to tell you, the church is an altar. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Hallelujah. But the pretext of that says if prayers are made at this place. What was that place? The temple. It was the altar. There's something about coming to the altar. There's something about praying at the altar where we say God, will you forgive me? God, I've been out of the will of God. I haven't talked to you. I haven't encountered you. God, I have neglected my responsibilities. There's something about saying, God, I don't want a leftover blessing. I don't want the acceptable will of God. I don't want to be out of the will of God. I don't want just the good will of God. But God, I want to be like Jacob that says, Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll build whatever altars it takes. I'll pray it whatever altars it takes. I'll make whatever kind of commitments it's got to take, amen, to be in the perfect will of God. The only difference between Jacob and Esau that I find, the only major difference, although he ran, he might have ran from his problems, his brother, But I'll tell you where else he ran. He ran to the altar. Church, don't run from the altar. I messed up. I know. Don't run from the altar. I'm not not doing the perfect will of God. I get it. We've all been there a time or two or two million. Run to the altar. Esau... He ran to hunting. He ran to hobbies. He ran to other women. It's where he ran. But he never ran to the altar. And that's what made the difference in his life. But I want to tell everybody here today, we have an altar. We have an altar where we can come and pray. We are, we are a church that has set up an opportunity every single service that if you've never built an altar in your own life, we built one for you. And you can come to the altar and you can do whatever it takes to make things right with God. You can repent. Maybe it's not even repentance. Maybe it's you just need direction. Amen. The Bible says in Ezekiel that the waters were flowing from out from underneath the altar, east, north, south, west, which means all direction came from the altar. It was there at the altar that that, that Jacob prayed, he didn't know what to do, and God told him, northward, southward, eastward, westward, same thing he did to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you. I want to tell you, when you come to the altar, God's got a blessing with your name on it. It might be something where he just redirects you, it might be where he, he causes you to repent, but regardless, he gets you back into his will through the altar. In fact, I want us to do that today. Would you come down to the altar?
and lift up your hands and let's pray all across this building. Esau ran from the altar. He ran from the presence of God. He ran to all these other things, but he never ran to the altar. But Jacob, flawed and failed, morality messed up. He ran to the altar. Saul, he never repented. He never ran to the altar. He never made it right. And he lost his kingdom. But David murdered a man, caused all sorts of problems in Israel. And every time when the preacher came by and preached to him, he went and he repented. He fell on his face. He built an altar. And he said, God, forgive me. And Jesus is known as the son of David. I just want to remind you here today, Judas, he never ran to the altar. He never ran to a place of repentance. He ran and hung himself. It didn't end well. It was like Esau. But Peter, when confronted and convicted, he ran to the altar. He ran to Jesus' feet. And he became a preacher of Pentecost. Run to the altar. Come on, let's pray. Come on, let's pray. Run to the altar. Run to the altar. Don't hide from the altar. Come on, I know the devil wants you to stay where you are. But you can come to the altar Wednesday, Tuesday, Sunday. You can come in on Monday. You can come in on Saturday. You can build an altar in your home. All that matters is you make an altar and you run to it. Come to the end of yourself. Do you thirst for a drink from the world? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was as well pray. You're here, you might as well make a commitment to God. You're here, you might as well repent. You're here, you came to the altar. You might as well just get an encounter with God. Come on. Come on, you came to the house of God. You came to the altar. Make a commitment. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling.
Somebody's praying right now. You're in the altar. You ought to pray, God, don't ever let me lose my way to the altar. Don't let me ever lose my love for the altar. Don't ever let me lose my love for the altar. Every time the doors are open, every time a sermon's preached, every time we teach, we open up the altar. Come to the altar. That's it. Somebody needs to pray right now. There's somebody in this building right now. You have lived too long like Esau, just trying to make it right on your own, but you haven't gone to the altar. You haven't built an altar. I want to tell you the only way you get back in the perfect will of God is you build an altar, and you pray at that altar, and you repent at that altar. I'm not getting it right on my own power. I'm going to the altar, and God's going to help me get it right. I'm going to pray, and the blood of Jesus is going to cover me on that altar. The blood of Jesus is going to purify me on that altar. Somebody needs to pray right now for their love of the altar. Somebody needs to pray right now, God, give me my love for the altar back. God, give me, give me my love. When I first got saved, I loved going to the altar. God, give me my love for the altar back. Give me my love for going down to the front and just praying and getting a hold of God and responding to the Word of God and responding to conviction and saying, God, whatever you have for my family, God, help me to get back to the place where I bring my family to the altar and I pray over them and I, I bless them in Jesus' name.
Hebrews tells us we have an altar. Unlike the Old Testament, we don't necessarily have physical stone structures anymore. Nothing biblically says you can't do that. Just don't offer animals on it. We don't do that no more. We, we have Jesus now. But there's something about even the symbology of building. This is why the apostolic church always does an altar call. You know, every denomination used to do an altar call. Even those that did not preach the fullness of the gospel. In order to get saved the way that they viewed it, which is not scriptural, the only way to be saved is through repentance, water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Death, burial, resurrection, blood, water, spirit. We all understand that we're an apostolic church. But they used to say, if you want to be saved, you have to come down to the altar and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Nowadays, you know, there's you can text this number. You don't even you don't even need to use your voice. You can text it. We don't even we don't even believe in bringing people down to the front. It went from come to the altar to now stay in your seat and just raise your hand and then it now is you don't even have to be in the church building. You can just text us your number. That's secular Christianity. It's gone completely away from the even even from the concept of an altar. This is why they might even say all those clips that you see on Instagram, they're just like the 30 seconds of the best part of whatever they had to say. But when they got done, there was no direct application. Now come down here and pray about it. I'm going to tell you as your pastor, when I get done teaching and preaching, come down here and pray about it. Well, pastor, it didn't really speak to me today. It might tomorrow. So come down and pray about it. Because we're not losing the idea of having an altar call. Because you know what I've learned? People don't do more when they're out of church. They do less than what they do in church. So if you don't pray at church, you ain't praying at home. If you don't lift your hands at church, you, you ain't lifting your hands at home. If you don't pray in the altar of the church, you are not building an altar in your home. That's right. Some pastoring 101. But we as an apostolic church, we have not gotten away from bringing yourself to the altar. There's some... The, the Old Testament altar in the tabernacle of the wilderness they would they would slaughter an animal blood would go everywhere and then fire and they take the instruments of the tabernacle and they had to purify them on the altar blood and fire they had to purify even in revelations the bible says he is the lamb of god which was slain from the foundation of the world and he ever makes intercession of us on the altar there's something symbolic about coming to the altar and understanding that right now there's a lamb slain from the foundation of the world that is making intercession for me on the altar. And right now I'm on the symbolic altar. And I'm praying and I'm saying, God, purify me. The Bible says we are vessels. We are vessels. And we need to be purified. How do you get purified? The altar. 
Only difference between Jacob and Esau, one built an altar and one didn't. That's it. Well, pastor, what, what makes you a preacher? I'll tell you what made me a preacher. The altar. The altar. I went to the altar. And I just came to remind somebody here today, don't lose your love for the altar. You lose your love for the altar, and I'm going to tell you right now, your whole world's going to start shifting. There's something. And let me just ask a quick question. Who received the Holy Ghost in the altar? Just talk about in the physical altar. Yeah, okay. Came down to the front, you got, got the Holy Ghost. Now, the Bible says in Acts 2 they were where they were sitting, sitting down. I mean, I, I don't believe scripturally you have to be in the altar, but okay. Has anybody ever received a physical miracle in the altar? Put your hand. It's a, it's a good amount of people. Has anybody ever gotten a word about something you prayed about in the altar? Has anybody ever repented in the altar? Has anybody ever made a commitment to God that has changed your life in the altar? You look around for a second. Just lift your hand. Don't let the devil tell you the altar is not important. If you won't pray in the altar at church, you don't have an altar at home. But if you will, and I'm not, I'm not shaming anybody, please. I got better things to do than that. I'm trying to instruct you as your pastor. Well, you know, he, and I, let me just also clarify how I preach and how I pastor. I preach what I feel like God has laid on my heart. I really, I, 99% of the time I don't speak, don't think about anybody. Uh, and if I do, I'll probably tell you because it's important and it's a good message for you. And I'm going to preach it to you. But, but, but most of the time I'm just preaching what I feel. And there's times where I'm, I might say some things that actually have nothing to do with you. It's just in the spirit. There's somebody over here that it actually is dealing with them. And I might even deal with some difficult subjects. Like, okay, there's somebody in the building needs to repent of pornography. And then I invite people, everybody to come down to the altar. And you're like, I don't want people to think I'm struggling with that. Hey, listen, the altar is not an admission of guilt before men. Nobody, if you, if you think people going to the altar are the ones that have problems, you've got it all backwards. The people that go to the altar are fixing problems. I'll tell you who has problems is the people who don't go to the altar. Again, nobody in my mind not thinking about anything, but but because you're all here in the altar, so we're just having a good time. Amen. But this this is the other thing I'll say about the altar. We can't expect visitors to come to the altar if we won't. Well, I brought them. I'm just gonna sit back here and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna move, I'm not gonna praise God. I hope they get the Holy Ghost. I hope they repent. Listen, the only way the world's ever gonna repent is if we show them how. If we come to the altar and we pray, this is what, and I tell you, 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 in fact, many of us have noticed, you notice how sometimes the altar call is just so powerful? I could, I could, I could have preached a, a great sermon or a terrible sermon, but something about that altar call, just like, there's a connection that happens, because now it's us responding to the word that was preached, whether we liked it or we didn't, is irrelevant. And God moves in in that altar, and God starts sweeping through. the. I've seen this happen multiple times. I've seen some people leave, and there's like a second or third wave that comes to the altar. Don't miss out. The Bible says this. Don't you know those that wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Those that served in the Old Testament altar, the animal sacrifices, because they weren't just to burn it. They were to ingest it. 
They had to eat of the, he said, if you wait at the altar, serve at the altar, guess what? You're going to eat of the altar. You won't starve so much in God if you eat at the altar. In fact, he told him, and he said, don't let it get cold. You got to eat it while it's hot. Don't say, well, I'll pray about this later. No, come down to the altar and pray about it while it's hot and it's fresh. And everybody said, amen. Let's lift up our hands one more time. Father, we love you. We thank you here tonight. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this Bible study. I thank you, God, that you continually speak to us, God, that you convict us, that you help us, God. We thank you, Lord, that we have an altar, that we believe in the altar, and that people can get saved in the altar. We thank you, Lord, that you fill people with the Holy Ghost in the altar, and even people that are in the back of the building while other people are praying in the altar, creating an atmosphere for you to move and to do great things. And God, I'm praying today that, Lord, you would make sure ARC always has fire on their altar, God. I pray that ARC would always have the fire of the altar of God. Amen. That that our families would get the fed, would get fed at the altar. That our families would get on fire in the altar. That our ministries would be fed on the altar. That our ministries would get on fire in the altar. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Shake hands, be friendly, love one another. Don't forget Sunday. Invite somebody. Take some church cards with you. Brother Claiborne's going to preach an incredible word. In Jesus' name. God bless you.